two missing girls. I haven't seen my daughter in, in over a month. I don't know what happened to her. A decade of mystery. Ten years ago today, Kara Kopetsky disappeared. Security video shows her walking out of her Belton High School, and no one has seen her since. One thing in common. Kara's ex-boyfriend, Kyler Hughes. Kyler Hughes in the custody in Edwards, Missouri. Kyler Hughes. It's Kyler Hughes. Kyler Hughes. And the murder trial that could end it all. I don't know anything about where she is or about what happened. I wish I did. Journey for Justice, the trial of Kyler Eust. Kyler, where's Jessica? I have no idea, sir. A limited series on 41 Files by 41 Action News. Welcome back to our fourth episode in our limited series about the murder trial of Kyler Eust on 41 Files from 41 Action News. I'm one of your hosts, Caitlin Brown. And I'm Haley Godburn. We are both digital content producers at KSHB, and now we're podcasters too. Right. So we wanted to bring you this murder trial podcast just to refresh your memories on the case and just to emphasize the importance of local news and how we um, cover this case and how it affects the people in our community. Yep. So we've kind of gone over a lot of the case details already. Um, and some of the uh, details of the court case itself. Um, and today we're going to talk more about kind of the journalism aspect of it and how do you cover a story that's literally been a decade in, or more in the making. Um, so kind of where we left off um, with the case details, you know, Cara and Jessica went missing almost an entire decade apart. Their bodies were found very close to each other. Um, Kyler Eust was arrested for burning Jessica's car. Um, and then when their bodies are found and identified, he's charged with murder. Um, and so now we're kind of in the early stages of the court case. Um, and we have a few guests with us today to talk about, um, kind of that lead up to the court case and, uh, the different coverage that they've been able to bring us on this story. So you remember Andy joined us before and Sarah did also, and today we also have Andres. So Andres, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey there, I'm Andres Gutierrez. I've been a reporter here at KSHB for close to eight years now. I've been following this case ever since Jessica Runyon's went missing back in September of 2016, the night of. And so this case has been really unraveling since then. Yeah, kind of along those lines, do you each want to talk about kind of where you entered the coverage and what aspects of the case you really focused your reporting on? Yeah, sure. I'll start. Uh, I started uh, the night that she went uh, missing. Uh, so uh, we went, uh, essentially, the police departments had sent out a missing persons uh, a press release saying that they were looking for this young woman who had last been seen uh, that Thursday uh, at 930. Uh, this was sent out on a Saturday. And so we chased that story for Saturday night at 10. Uh, we went ahead and tried to connect with any of her relatives who may have known where her last whereabouts were, uh, just trying to figure out how she could have gone missing. We connected with her aunt, who we met at her uh, grandparents' place, and we interviewed them. And then later that evening, about an hour after, uh, we got word that they had found her car burnt out down in South Kansas City on Blue River Road. And so we went out there and the police, it was a massive crime scene, and the police department held a um, press conference uh, talking about how this was her back her car, but she was still missing. And so they were still looking for her. 
Um, and that's kind of what we had filed that night. And then in the days to come, we were trying to figure out again who she was last seen with. And so we tried to connect uh, uh, with, you know, she apparently was last seen at this party with Kyler Eust. And then that name came up and I hadn't been here uh, when he was, you know, uh, apparently linked to uh, Cara Capetzi's case. Uh, and so I started learning more about Kyler Eust and kind of his background and why people were so worried uh, that he was last seen with her. And so that's kind of where I started uh, with this case. So Sarah, I know we talked about on your episode, how you kind of you grew up in the area. So you kind of grew up as this case was unfolding, but where did you enter it as a journalist when you eventually came back to Kansas City and started reporting here? Well, I had covered, I think, a couple of Cara Kapetsky's, uh, like, missing anniversary walks. Like, they would always do a walk for her, you know, the day she went missing, May 4th. Um, and at this point, I mean, we, it, it hadn't, had, it hadn't gone as far as them finding the girls or everybody was missing. And I think it was even prior to Jessica Runyon's going missing too, is when they were, I was covering some of these walks, but, um, you know, it was, it was interesting because it was that May 4th and they were hoping that I think it was the 10 year anniversary and they were hoping that there wouldn't be an 11th year. Um, and it turned out that way. And I always thought about that, how uh, her mom just hoped and prayed that she, there wouldn't be another year. And then come to find out she was actually found. Um, and so that I covered a couple of those, but then, um, you know, when Jessica went missing, um, and all that, I didn't really cover that. I, I kind of came in on the back end now that we're in kind of these court hearings after you had been charged and all of that. Um, I've, I've gone to several of those court hearings and kind of, uh, established a relationship, uh, or a rapport with the Runyon's family and the Kapetsky family, but yeah. Andy, um, I know you came in a little bit later than uh, Sarah and Andres did as well, and you've been um, really key in our court coverage as well of this case. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what your entry point was there? Sure. So I think for me, it really started um, when the uh, bodies were found in the woods. And at that point, they weren't identified. Uh, it was certainly within the realm of possibility and people uh, certainly thought it was possible it could have been the girls. Um, I went to a man's house that uh, lived nearby there named Joe Montiel and interviewed him. His son um, was in a band uh, with Kyler used a few years earlier and uh, they actually had pictures of him uh, at their house uh, at various functions and, and hanging out. And, uh, Mr. Montiel actually said, you know, the, the fact that, uh, the, the woods where they were found was so close to his house. He, he thought, you know, it's kind of, it's certainly strange to think that, you know, I sat down with this guy and, and we ate and he thought, uh, he, he speculated, but he turned out to be right. He said, uh, it's certainly possible. It could be those girls. And, and as it turned out, it was those girls. And, um, after that point, uh, we returned there and uh, there was uh, um, sort of a makeshift memorial that was set up with crosses and so forth. And, and uh, we talked to uh, various people in the community. And, and again, it was still at that point where they had not been identified. But I, I think it was the it was just widely believed that it was going to be the girls. There was just too much to suggest uh, that that it, it probably was. Um, you know, it's just kind of an amazing thing that somebody that's out hunting for mushrooms would make this kind of discovery, um, you know, so many years, uh, particularly after Cara disappeared, and and uh, you know, even after you know Jessica disappeared. So uh, you know, they they'd been gone for quite some time, and and you know, because you, you think about it, really, um, 
I think the FBI entered the case uh, really mostly as a, a missing persons uh, case. You know, that's kind of how they, they first became involved because, you know, particularly with Cara because she'd been gone for so very long. And then obviously uh, it's developed in, into what it is. But, um, you know, uh, I, I think you, you have to go back, particularly with our uh, station and, and credit some really fantastic journalists that, that did uh, great work, um, you know, way back when, when this was uh, first getting started. I'm thinking about uh, Russ Potosik and uh, Richard Sharp and um, certainly, uh, Sarah and Andres fit into that category as well. They've all done really great work, and and you know we I think uh, you know we've been pretty aggressive about covering this for the community as best we can. I want to um, just kind of start asking you guys about you know you guys have been really inter- instrumental in keeping in touch with the families, even though you didn't necessarily start back when Kara disappeared. Um, I want to ask about how you go about starting to develop these sources, and then you know, these families are going through such tremendous difficulties and loss. And then how do you maintain that relationship when it's been several years since, you know, the latest breaking piece of the case? And I know, Sarah, we kind of touched on this last time briefly, and you're close to Jamie Runyon's, but do you want to start? Yeah. um, For me, I think it's important to uh, let the family know that you're there for them and that, you know, you're that person they can come to uh, when they want to talk about their daughter, when they want to talk about their loved one. And, and to me, that's, if you've got a really good rapport and a close relationship with the family, um, I mean, when really they're in a sea of reporters, you know, there are so many reporters, so many different outlets that they could talk to. But uh, for me, establishing that uh, from the get-go uh, really ensures not only that we have the latest information and that we know that the family will talk to us. Absolutely. But it also, I think helps, um, let them know that, you know, they're not alone and that we care about this story. So, um, when I kind of got on, on board with, you know, after use was charged and we're going through all these court proceedings and things like that, um, I just made sure I reached out to her, um, Jamie Runyon's Jessica's mom. And I'd seen her at some other stories I had done, um, and just really made sure I, I had conversations with her, talked to her, and not coming at her like I wanted to, like, hey, you give me a sound bite. Sometimes they don't, and you have to respect that. And it's respecting that so that over and over again, so that by the time they really decide to to come out and say something again, they'll they'll talk to me. Um, uh, that's the hope anyway, um, because like I mentioned last time, um, the Runyons and the Beckford family, um, they have not done any interviews throughout this the, the whole court proceeding and all of that. They want to wait until the trial or after the trial, which is really smart. And I understand that. So I'm not going to pressure them. Um, but I, but I do talk to Jamie and, um, you know, on the phone and things like that. And it, it's important to me to have those relationships with people. Yeah. Andres, do you want to chime in? Yeah. And initially for me, it was, uh, staying in touch with, uh, Michelle Runyon's, uh, Jessica's aunt, uh, at the beginning, uh, cause she was the one who talked to us the night that she just, uh, that, you know, we did a story. And then in the days and weeks that followed, she was really my point of uh, contact, because uh, I really didn't want to bother other relatives, especially when it's such a traumatizing time when you're looking, your your loved one is lost, right? You don't know where they're at. You don't want to be inundating the family, every single member with a request for an interview. And if you establish that point of contact, at least it helps, you know, um, you have one source to go to. And that's what I usually tell, you know, I, I not only do I deal with cases like this, you know, but, you know, it, I usually cover crime and, you know, when there's a, there's a homicide and there's a 
loved one who's been lost to violence, you know, I usually tell the family, you know, it, it's hard when you do have, like Sarah said, a ton of reporters, you know, uh, trying to get you to talk. Uh, and, and if you designate kind of a, you know, a family spokesperson, it kind of helps relieve that in, in that moment uh, where there's so much going on. Andres, if I could, I want to circle back a little bit. Um, you mentioned you were the reporter on the story the night that Jessica went missing. And sometimes in the newsroom, like police will send us a missing person's uh, picture and information. And, you know, the, the, the most we can do with it is run their photo on TV and say, keep an eye out for this person. So I'm kind of curious to know, like, how did this particular case rise to the level of, okay, we need to put a reporter on this. And can you kind of walk us through that day and how that, um, how that came about? Well, I believe that the, I was in a different story that Saturday afternoon, and eventually this release came through, and um, there were, had been, I believe, other people who had reached out to the station uh, saying that this uh, was more than it was, uh, that it needed the attention of a reporter, and we decided to go ahead and pursue that path, and so we started reaching out to family members, and once they were, was word came, that you know, Kyler Use was associated with this case. That also gave it so much more attention. Um, and and the next, and then from what I recall, is that you know, soon after that, Kyler was arrested and charged with the burning of the car. Um, and and police were over at the grandfather's house, and we went to the grandfather's house, and he said, well, he didn't know what was going on, but that police had been there. Uh, and in fact, I think about two days after the arrest was made, the grandfather actually invited us into the home and showed us kind of what the home looked like. And not only did it happen there, but I believe that uh, another reporter, Allie Hoxley, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, was on this story initially, she ended up getting inside the trailer uh, yeah. in uh, Edwards, Missouri, where Kyler was arrested. Um, now, this is all kind of, uh, it's, it's such a large case because uh, what we ended up finding out is that on September 10th, when that vehicle was uh, was found, uh, Kyler, Jessup Carter, his brother, and another woman were pulled over in Henry County. Uh, and uh, police at the time did not know that Kyler was, you know, had had some connection to finding the vehicle burned in uh, Kansas City. And so it was just a traffic stop uh, and they gave him a ticket and they went on their way. Uh, apparently, uh, Kyler was in the passenger seat uh, in the car uh, and um, police eventually arrested him, you know, there in Henry County. Um, and that's where Richard Sharp was able to get the uh, the uh, interview of the well. He was it was in Benton, it was a Benton County Sheriff's. But um, anyways, it was one of those situations where um, we we ended up getting so close to the to the case just because we kind of followed you know where 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 it was going. And you um you actually had the chance to talk to Jessup Carter too, didn't you? Yeah, because a few months later he got charged with some domestic violence uh, for for beating for, for involving his ex girlfriend, uh, and so we went out to out there, uh, and we learned that this traffic stop had happened. We went to the court hearing for the domestic violence charge, and we ended up asking uh, Jessup about what he thought of the 
case involving Kyler, and he said that he couldn't really comment on specifics, but that his family was not okay with what Kyler had done, which essentially was going to be huge for the the case because at some point he also admitted that he had seen uh, in court documents at least that were filed in Cass County. Uh, Carter said that he had seen Kyler or Kyler set the vehicle on fire. Uh, so, but then uh, eventually Joseph Carter uh, was arrested for uh, trying to burn uh, his house uh, that he lived uh, over at uh, 59th in Manchester. Um, he got arrested for that, uh, but then hung himself with a sheet in uh, jail. And so uh, the prosecution ended up looting, uh, losing a big, big uh, witness in this case. And we, we talked about um, that detail with Andy in the third episode. Um, listeners, if you want to go back and listen to some of that context. Yeah, and there was um, a, a note. There was some sort of encrypted note, right, Andy, that uh, Carter apparently left, and that was not collected. <laughs> right, exactly. In fact, uh, that came up uh, in this last hearing, uh, you know, from the defense that uh, they said, you know, we we don't really we can't defend our, our client uh, as well as we'd like because we don't have uh, as much information uh, as we we should have. And and this is where they said that the investigation was derelict that they you know, really didn't pursue uh, that encrypted note to figure out what was going on. And it's it's gone now. So uh, not much can be done about it, apparently. You know, we kind of want to give our listeners an inside look at just how we cover this sort of thing. So when breaking news drops like the arrest or the bodies found or any big development in the case, what is the first step you guys take as a reporter to break the news and find all the facts and just deliver the story? Um, Andy, do you want to start? Well, I think obviously the main thing is, is that, uh, you know, if, if you're getting a tip from someone, you have to verify it as, as much as possible. I mean, obviously something like uh, the bodies being found is, is a big deal. And, and that's really uh, obviously easy to confirm when you see that, uh, you know, the whole area is blocked off. I think, uh, as I recall, uh, the, the day that that happened, uh, we did have a helicopter up and we were able to get some uh, video of the scene that, that showed all of the uh, first responder vehicles that were all over the place and, and uh, you know, kind of zero in on, on where that was at. And, um, you know, we were, you know, sort of able to go from there. Um, and uh, obviously the fact that uh, there was a long uh, contextual history um, in the Kyler Eust case um, you know, certainly uh, helped. Um, and we, you know, certainly uh, there was, uh, we wanted, you know, we reached out, I know as a newsroom to uh, the families and, and various other people to, to kind of you know, get some uh, reaction and um, it uh, it turned out the way it did. What about you, Andres? What's the first step? Phone call, jump in the car, like how do you just process where to begin? It's a, it's exactly what Andy said. It's verifying the information initially and then going out and chasing it. I think it's uh, sometimes you can make phone calls, but I think for me, uh, I'm known in the newsroom for making those door knocks because I feel like getting out there and pe speaking to people who are close to the situation uh, can help you get some perspective. And I think that soon after this case broke, I, I think what we were trying to figure out who else was at the party with Jessica Runyon's, right? Because we were trying to figure out, you know, uh, how, how did she end up at this party? Uh, what state was she in when she left this party? Um, it, we were just trying to essentially fill in the gaps that police weren't telling us. And, and, and who better to tell us that information than those who were closest to her? And so uh, I think whenever there's something that breaks, uh, you know, we try to verify it by going to the source. Uh, and so that's what we try to do right after uh, 
the, the case and we have been doing so throughout this whole, you know, leading up to this trial. Yeah, Sarah, do you want to add to that? I'll speak from like um, kind of what's going through your mind when this stuff happens. Um, for me, I, I'll be honest with you, I was jealous that I couldn't cover it because I think at that point I... Um, I, I was doing something else, or maybe I just transitioned to dayside. I was on the morning show for a while, and then I transitioned to the dayside show or to, to the dayside shift. And so I think everybody else was on that, and then I was on something else. And I wanted to cover it so bad because I knew what the history was and um, for with the whole thing. But um, w when you hear about stuff like that, and you know it's a big case, and you like you can just feel it. It's this is something big, and you're like adrenaline's immediately rushing. You want to get out there. You want to go, 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 go. And it's just um, I don't want to say excitement, but really it's that's kind of what it just shocks shocks throughout you. You know, you, you want to get out there and you want to find out immediately. And so it's like, okay, what calls do I have to make? Where do I need to go? Um, your mind's going a mile a minute, but you kind of have to pare down and focus. All right. Let's take a minute here. Who is this person? Reach out to their family. And like Andra said, get out the door. So that's generally how I feel when things like this happen. Speaking of kind of emotion and adrenaline as it relates to this case, Andres, you were in the room when police called the families when the bodies were found. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it was, the, there were remains. A mushroom hunter found these remains on Monday and about a few days later, uh, we were still on the case, obviously. It was the big story of the week, and we were just trying to get a follow-up and uh, to see where, you know, had there been any developments. And the the family, uh, Jim, Rhonda Beckford, and Jessica Runyon's mom ended up doing a interview with us. Uh, for We were sitting down, it was around noon, um, and we were in the middle of the interview, myself and another reporter from Kansas City, we were uh, just real cameras were rolling. Um, and we were just asking about, you know, how uh, they felt that they hadn't heard, you know, necessarily, you know, that they found those remains, but um, there hadn't been any more word from law enforcement. We were just kind of doing a follow up. And, and we were asking these questions when Jim gets a call from the Belton Police Department and he takes, he stands up, he takes the call. We stopped the interview. The, the camera's rolling, but we, we obviously stopped the conversation. Uh, he gets the, he gets on the phone, he's talking to them, puts him on speakerphone and the person on the other line says, you know, we may have some type of resolution here. Uh, and he asks them to go down to the Belton Police Department. Um, but the family gets really emotional. Um, and it is emotional. It's it, it was because I I felt like deep inside they knew that these were their girls, um, and so being in that room, it's almost you know it's it's like getting a call. You know, um, you know they found your lo your loved one, and and um, I remember we ended up uh, stopping the interview, and they went to the police department. We followed them. Um, and, and that's where they essentially got word that, you know, this could be them, but they had to wait for forensic testing, uh, to come in. And a few months, uh, later, uh, they confirmed that it was indeed Cara and Jessica. Uh, and so, um, we ended up filing a report kind of, you know, talking about the developments of that day for the, uh, early evening shows at four and five, um, but really it was, I'll never forget being there and just, you know, just kind of seeing that hurt in their eyes. Uh, so uh, for them, especially given that, you know, again, for, for, 
for Kara's family, it's been, you know, decades that they've been trying to find some resolution uh, to, to, to her, you know, disappearance. So Sarah, in your episode, you kind of talked to the point that that moment was kind of maybe bittersweet is the right word. You know, they obviously don't want that outcome, but maybe like Andres, you said, there's some resolution there. And did you kind of feel that duality in the room when they got that call? Uh, yeah, it, it definitely, it's, uh, it, uh, definitely did feel like that. Um, again, it, it's just, um, they, there were tears that were shed in that room, you know, when, when that happened, uh, because they did want, um, some type of answers, you know, they've been searching for answers, you know, for more than a decade and they finally had, you know, some type of, uh, some, you know, they, 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 they at least had, a, a, there was a development in their case. Any of you, like when they find the bodies and say they think it's them, like what emotions were you feeling? Cause you're human too. You're not just a face on TV. Like, was it in the moment? Was it when you got home that night? What were you guys feeling? Oh, um, I, yeah, I kind of touched on this last time, but I, it, I felt, um, kind of like sick to my stomach because I knew that this was huge. And like I said, knowing the, the history of, of Kara and then Jessica and, and everybody, like everybody's minds are blown when this link with Kyler used, and then the girls are found. I mean, immediately everybody was like, that's them, you know, it's like, and they're together. That was, I think that's, that blew my mind. I mean, that just made me want to cry. You know, they were together this whole time. And that's, I don't know. It just, it just really touched me that way. Um, you know, Car's been there for so long, and and then Jessica joined her. It it, it was it was just so incredibly tragic. Yeah, I, I would say that. You know, I, I was been in this business for for many years, and and for a lot of that time, um, I was single. You know, and, and um, I think you know now that I'm uh, a parent it's a little bit different perspective. Um, you know, I don't think there could possibly be anything worse in life than losing a child. There just isn't. And particularly when you don't have answers for so long, I, I mean, you know, I, I kind of touched on this the last time, but you know, you think about it, Cara was a 17 year old girl when she walked out of Belton high school. Uh, and that was in 2007. We're talking now in, in 2021. That's 14 years later. That's almost an entire, her entire lifetime later. Um, and it's still really unresolved. I mean, yes, there's a, there's a, a pending case, but we don't have a resolution in that case. And it's entirely possible there may be, you know, an appeal. So this could go on for considerably longer. And so this family has had to endure this for, you know, well over a decade. Uh, and then, you know, certainly that it doesn't take anything away from the Runyon's family either. They've suffered a terrible loss. We're talking about very young women here that didn't really have a chance to uh, to live their lives, you know, to, uh, you know, to get married potentially and have a family and all that stuff. And, and you know, th this is the result. So, you know, I think you know, when you approach um, a story like this, particularly when you're dealing with these families, um, you have to, you know, as best you can try to put yourself in, in those shoes. And, and both Sarah and Andres touched on this is that, you know, that there, there's a fine line there, you know, between doing your job and in crossing the line and, and bothering these people, you know, you want to respect 
um, their feelings as much as possible. And if you do that, and if you build that trust, um, you know, then the end result uh, perhaps will be, you know, that you will get something special, you know, in the long run. And it's worth the wait, um, you know, I, because if you, if you ruin it in advance, there's really no way to go back, you know. So um, it, I think it's important right out of the gate you know, to be as respectful of these people as possible and, and understand that, you know, this is, this is something that's going to, there's no way, no way that a parent can ever possibly be the same after losing a child for the rest of their life ever. And you have to remember that. I agree. You've kind of feel again for these families of how long they've had to wait. And also the community, I think is so vested and, and, and mm -hmm. they want to see some type of resolution and, and really some, some type of outcome for the family. Um, so over the course of covering this case, it's been years for all of you. Um, has there been anything you you've learned from covering, covering this case, covering Cara and Jessica stories that maybe you, you didn't know, or didn't have that perspective on before um, coming into it. I don't know, something that jumps out at me was just uh, going to all these hearings and seeing hearing after hearing and really seeing what the defense team can do, you know, because they're the defense is, is throwing everything they can out there right now. Um, and I mean, COVID is, has been a part of it too, but you know, when the defense files motion after motion, this has continued for so long and you just really, um, and that, that's a difference between whether you're really vested in the story or not, you know, you got to go and me, Andres and Andrew, uh, Andy, like we've been going to all these hearings. Um, someone has gone to all of these hearings since he's been arrested and you really learn the intricacies of really what a murder case is or a murder trial is. So that, that was interesting to me to be so to like know every detail. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to learn something because, you know, there's been a flood of documents. Uh, I mean, the discovery is just off the charts, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of pages and discs and, and everything else. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot uh, that you learn over the course of time about how things unfolded and, and uh, even going back. I mean, you know, when you first uh, get started, um, you know, you have to kind of try and find some context and, you know, you go back and look at, uh, you know, stories that other people have done in, in advance and, and kind of try and get some idea of what's happening here. But um, they're just, there's, you know, with this much passage of time, there's just so many layers um, that uh, it, it's, it's hard to really wrap your head around all of it. Uh, you know, it's easy to miss a, a detail here or there, but uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we're gonna hear probably a lot more stuff that, that maybe we haven't heard uh, if, if, when this trial goes forward. So that's, that's why there's gonna be so much interest in it. And for me, what I've learned is kind of the little things that could possibly jeopardize a case. Yeah. You know, I think the defense during all of this has been trying to bring up how these uh, people who conducted their own investigations, you know, like that, uh, what they're describing as a rogue uh, officer, you know, conducting his investigation may jeopardize this entire case. And so that's the first time that I've seen an instance like that in any of the murder cases that I've covered. So we'll see how that all plays out once this goes to trial here in a few in a few weeks. But that really has stood out for me. Uh, during this. Kind of along the same lines, is there a pivotal moment or memory or person 
something like that, that you've experienced while covering this case that you'll carry with you into your career, or just kind of into your life that you'll kind of hang on to from this? Uh, what, I mean, I guess one small thing for me, well, it's kind of a big thing, I guess, but we were talking about how, how I'm from the area and, uh, Cara is like, her birthday is like two days after mine. We're the same age. And so I remember her going missing when I was in high school, um, when I was 17 and she was 17 and just the comparison of, of all that life, that all, all that time that she lost. And, um, you know, here I am covering my hometown and, and covering her disappearance and covering her murder. It's just so, it's just so wild to me. But it just, um, these, these sorts of stories always, um, I always, I always kind of gravitate toward these stories anyway, um, especially when it comes to like missing women, missing young women, missing teenagers, missing people. Um, it just, it, you know, people care um, and people should care. Um, and, and this is probably one of the biggest stories I think I'll probably ever cover one of them. And it's, yeah, just the, just, just the weight of it all, I think, um, will stick with me. For me, I think, uh, really, um, the pivotal thing that might stick with me is yet to come. And that, uh, is going to be what happens, uh, in court. You know, I mean, I'm looking forward, uh, with great anticipation to see exactly what happens and what, you know, we might learn, uh, from the courtroom and what we might hear from the families if there's a resolution here one way or another. Um, I, I think, you know, because obviously they've had to sort of uh, for a long time now just kind of, uh, you know, cork up uh, their emotions and their comments about everything that, that they've seen. And at some point that's all gonna come gushing out. Um, and so I, I think, uh, you know, the, the, what, you know, is yet to come may, may very well be uh, the best stuff that, uh, that, that we hear and see. I think for me, it's been kind of, you know, I cover a lot of bad guys, right? People who I, I, I cover a lot of people who haven't done great things in their lives, right? And the thing for me has been, you know, Kyler uses history, right? How he has been a person who has been abused as a young kid, allegedly, right? Uh, he's a person who has been accused of killing kittens, of uh, abusing his ex-girlfriends, and now faces these, uh, you know, murder charges. You know, it makes you wonder just, you know, how his life could have been different, right? Uh, had he been able to change his life around after those first instances, right, of, uh, uh, you know, being, you know, being accused of, you know, domestic violence, kind of how his life could have shaped up differently had he taken a different path. So for me, just, um, a lot of people just, you know, call him an evil, evil person. And, and, and that's really has kind of stood out for me, just the, you know, uh, the accusation he faces and, you know, kind of, you know, what he's done in the past. The three of you will be instrumental in covering the trial for us. And I just want to know, what are you guys most interested in finding out? What do you think will be most challenging? Like, what does the trial look like for each of you? Oh, well, I mean, it, it's slated for to be three weeks long. I mean, this is a long trial, which I'm, I'm excited about it. I can't wait, but, um, I, uh, I, I'm, I really want to be in there. And, and like, I think Andy or Andra said, all of the information that's going to come out in this trial that none of us knew, or maybe, you know, just, we couldn't, we couldn't publicly release yet. I think there's just so much information. That's just, it's going to be so compelling and I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> 
I think the the logistics part of it, I think, you know, with uh, just the volumes of evidence that we're expected to hear, uh, I just think it'll be interesting to see how, you know, uh, you know, what we make out of it every day uh, and, and kind of if, uh, you know, just overall, just just kind of, the, yeah, the surprises that there may happen in, in the courtroom when the trial gets going. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, you know, because there's going to be so much volume of evidence and, and so many compelling things, um, it's going to be uh, incumbent upon us uh, to uh, do, you know, put the stuff out there that the, that the people are going to want to know um, in an expeditious manner, uh, frequently, you know, where we're kind of up against it um, and in a way that they can understand that, that uh, you know, makes it uh interesting and, and so forth. So um, that's always challenging with it with a, a court case because you know you've got uh, uh, it, it goes on for several hours and there might be a quick break and then you know it, it seems like uh, in the many years that I've, I've covered various trials that particularly ones that that seem to uh, be of great public interest, almost invariably it seems like you know it winds up going to the jury or you wind up getting a verdict like at 455 and you're live at five and you know you're trying to trying to get the information uh, on as, as best you can so um you know I, I think uh, when you you have to go in there pretty focused um and and it a little bit different situation uh, down there in Cass County too uh, unlike a lot of places um they you can't even bring a uh, a phone there. So you got to you got to go old school. You got to bring your notepad and your pen and and listen, uh, you know, as, as best you can and and get the get the high points and, and um, you know, and go that way. And it's it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, more challenging. It's not kind of what we're used to anymore. It's a little bit different. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it'll certainly be, uh, uh, I, I think, a, uh, a challenge and, and certainly one that we uh, I'm sure we'll all embrace. Yeah. At this point, we're still waiting to find out what the deal is with the uh, pool camera. Uh, you know, for people right. who are listening, you don't know what a pool camera is. It's like um, out of all the TV stations, you know, you've got you have one crew that is in the courtroom uh, getting the video, getting the sound, and then we kind of share it with everybody. Usually we don't share anything, but, you know, this type of thing, it's, it's different. So we, we still have yet to know, like, what that's going to look like. I mean, everybody wants to see this trial. And so I don't think there's any way. <laughs> the judge or whoever can deny a, a camera. I don't know. It's yet to be seen, but that, that it's always kind of just a, a, a cluster trying to figure out, you know, running out after the, you know, it's after it's over trying to gather everything in your mind, send out updates. And it's just a, a mad dash, but it's, it's, it's the job. Right. And we have, you know, remember there are hours of testimony that will happen yep. out there on the stand and we've got to condense it to like 90 seconds for our viewers at home in our newscast every night. So it's there's definitely going in with a very laser focus approach mm -hmm. in that into right. that courtroom. Camera or not, I do want to remind our listeners that we plan to do daily updates um, in this podcast feed once the trial actually starts. Um, so, you know, hopefully we'll have a little more time than 90 seconds to give you details of what happened in court that day. Um, so once the trial starts, look out for those in that feed, in this feed. These are the three faces you'll see a lot. Um, I know you don't see them right now, but uh, they'll be kind of our main reporters on this coverage. So we look forward to bringing them back on and talking with them again. Thank you guys for sharing your perspectives with us. Of course. Um, I'm Caitlin and my co-host Haley. This is our limited series on the murder trial of Kyler Eust. If you want more information, you can go to kshb.com slash trial. 
You can dig into um, case details. There's a timeline where you can view each of the stories each of these reporters has done throughout the years. Thank you for joining us and we'll catch you next time.